<laughs> Dimitri's here. Hi, Dimitri. And welcome to episode 99 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, how are you? I'm good. Good? Good. I had a very good weekend. Oh, good. Got to see my Travis, which you know I love. Mm, Gotta love Travis. Gotta love Travis. Uh, I got to go listen to live music at Wusos. Awesome, awesome. Which means Trash Cats, John Seguin, Adam Herman. Love love some Adam Herman. We love Adam Herman. We got a call for more Adam Herman on the podcast. So we got to figure that out. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Yep. <laughs> um, and I had uh, Christmas, like early Christmas with my mother-in-law because she works at a nursing home. So oh. she always works Christmas because you got to get that time and a half. For real, though, you get bank. Yep. If you work on Christmas. <laughs> so all in all, a very good weekend. And then I went back to work today and it was not a stressful day. It was just an average stress day. Oh, so good. It was, it was great. How are you? Uh, I am more so than the past. I'm looking forward to the future. Okay. Okay. Wednesday is the solstice. Yes. Spooky Wednesday solstice. It is the shortest day of the year. And then... And then it gets longer and it gets lighter out. And I am so excited for it. But also what's happening on Wednesday is it is the first day of an eight-day weekend. Yes. Then I work one day. Okay. Then I have a four-day weekend. Uh, Take me with you. <laughs> I mean, I'm mostly staying here, but I am very excited. And hopefully I actually do the research for all of the episodes in advance <laughs> rather than just waiting for the day before. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, but also in the most Mondayest of Mondays, I this morning, when I was just wearing a towel, I had just gotten out of the shower, I fell down the stairs, which you saw the aftermath of. Big ass bruise. Like literally it's a bruise on her ass. Yes, it is. It is indeed. And I've got a matching one like up here as well. Beautiful. Yeah. I was going to say, you're like, ooh, I'm in a towel. I'm like, ooh, sexy. You're like, I fell down the stairs. Not sexy. It was not sexy, not sexy. at <laughs> all. It was it was quite uncomfortable and confusing and um, painful. Painful. But, but. Buts. I, <laughs> buts. But I work just one more day and then I have so many days off. I'm so excited. As you should be. So this is our second live episode. Mm-hmm. So uh, to those of you listening on Spooky Wednesday, uh, it is also Spooky Monday. And we have uh, guests. Yeah, we have people with us hanging out, listening, chatting with us. So if it's a little different from our normal format and we're just answering questions and you're like, what are they talking about? It's because we're answering people on the on the comments, which Dimitri just said, oh gosh, I hope you're okay. And what do you think of all this snow? It sucks. I don't like the snow. I do not like the snow. It's not my friend. I, uh, yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm okay. My, my booty hurts a bit. So <laughs> <laughs> what this pillow is for is to help me out. <laughs> the pillow is just to make sure I don't do that thing where I lean so far back you can't hear me in the microphone. I mean, that is a little bit as well. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so are you ready for my story? I am ready for your story. Because this will be coming out on the solstice Wednesday, it felt uh, appropriate to do a Christmas story. Uh, yeah, obviously. A, well, a kind of Christmas story. You'll you'll see what I mean. I mean, is it more Christmassy than last year when I talked about uh, spontaneous humus, <laughs> yes, human combustion, yes, and then we is. decided it was like a Yule log, a Yule log, where the Yule log is you. Yeah. <laughs> We just laugh at ourselves all the time. <laughs> well, nobody else will, so. Um, this year, I am covering Krampus. Ooh, yeah, gimme. So, 
this is almost more folksy than full out haunty, but it felt like a subject that should be covered. I mean, we do folk tales. Exactly. That's what I was saying. I was just like, there's no, you know, I like to have the like real interactions that people have had. Oh, yeah. There's like none of that here. No, <laughs> no. So in Catholicism, St. Nicholas is the patron saint of children. His Saint's Day falls in early December, which helped strengthen his association with the Yuletide season. It's a Christian thing, which is funny because even the word Yuletide is not originally a Christian thing. Mm -mm, It's not. I mean, Yuletide means Christmas season, but the first records of the word Yuletide came from the 1400s and the word Yule is even older. It was first recorded before 900. It comes from Old English Jeol, meaning Christmas Day or Christmas Tide, and a word for the period from Christmas Eve to like the related feasts in early January. And the term is related to the Old Norse Jeol and the name of the winter feast lasting 12 days, whose name later appears applied to Christmas. And so then there's the tree, there's the wreaths and the candles. And I could go on and on about this forever. All of these things that we associate with Christmas and like Christian Christmas technically comes from other things, but that's a whole other rant that normally you have to like meet me at like 1 a.m. on a bar stool to get me to go into. <laughs> I actually have a, a delightful little infographic that our listener Amy sent. That's like because someone on Facebook said, Jesus is the reason for the season. And then she commented with this amazing infographic that explained all of the things about Christmas mm-hmm. that are not actually associated with Christianity originally. Yeah. It's lovely. I mean, I'm not saying like Jesus might be the reason for your season, but there's just a lot of stuff and a lot of other holidays that come around on this time. Mm-hmm. And like it sucks for our friends who are like our friends who are Jewish who get they go to these stores and they get like aisles upon aisles upon aisles of Christmas stuff. And then there's like one end booth just with stuff for Hanukkah. Mm. Mm. Uh, anyway, like I said, that was a whole that's a whole ass rant. Anyway, so St. Nicholas. Many European cultures not only welcomed the kindly man as a figure of generosity and benevolence to reward the good, but they also feared his menacing counterparts who punished the bad. There's a few of them. Parts of Germany and Austria dread the Briesli Krampus, while other Germanic regions have Belschnickel and Schnecktrupt, a black-bearded man who carries switches to beat children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, France has Hans Trapp and Pierre Futard. Uh, I think... I don't know if I pronounced that last one right. Uh, and then I was looking at it and I almost wanted to cover Belschnickel, but I'd already said I was going to cover Krampus only because in the office, Dwight plays Belschnickel. Oh, yeah. It's like, I cheer or fear, Belschnickel is here. <laughs> have you been naughty? Or wait, have you been admirable or impish? <laughs> but I was like, nah, no. Nah. So today I'm going to talk about the most famous of them all, Krampus. Krampus, popular in legends from Central European countries such as Austria, Bavaria, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia, is a half-goat, half-demon monster that punishes misbehaving children at Christmas time. Krampus has horns, a dark, hairy body, fangs, and a long, sometimes forked tongue. So that's nice. Handsome. (laughs) A lot of the time, he looks really mangled and dirty and has bloodshot eyes and is just generally creepy. And he carries a large sack on his back to hold misbehaving kiddos and usually a stick or a bundle of sticks to beat them with. Oh, good. Love a good beaten bundle of sticks. (laughs) Wait, so he has goat legs? So is he like a a satyr? I mean, I guess, yes, you could say that, but that's not what the point was, I don't think. Okay. But yes, he does have goat legs. Well, in some stories, he has one goat leg and one human leg. Well, that's just confusing. I just imagine like thinking about the way that the, like your knee works versus how like a goat's leg Which is joints work. Backwards, right? I don't think it's backward. Like one of it is. It's like it's like this. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, Krampus is the anti Santa, the okay. devilish companion to Saint Nicholas. He shows up with a chain and bells that he lashes about along with his bundle of birch sticks meant to swat naughty children, and then he hauls the bad kids down to the underworld. Good. Good, good, good. Jeremy Sayers, an organizer for the Krampus Festival in Orlando, Florida, told Smithsonian.com, the Krampus is the yin to St. Nick's yang, 
You have the saint and you have the devil. It taps into a subconscious macabre desire that a lot of people have that's just to celebrate the opposite of the like super sweet Christmas. Like those those of us high school like mall goths that really just want to be brutal. I was going to say it sounds a lot like you. (laughs) (laughs) Evil laughter. It's not entirely clear when and how the Krampus customs began. There's a lot of stories behind it. Some say Krampus's roots have nothing to do with Christmas. Popular culture just made him that way. Instead, they date back to pre-Germanic paganism in the region. Krampus was thought to have been a part of pagan rituals for the winter solstice. According to legend, he is the son of Hel, the Norse god of the underworld. The legendary beast also shares characteristics with other scary demonic creatures in Greek mythology, including satyrs and fauns. And with the spread of Christianity, Krampus became associated with Christmas despite efforts from the Catholic Church to ban him. Of course the Catholic Church, they were like, no, no, saints only. In fact, according to National Geographic, Krampus's frightening presence was suppressed for many years. During the 12th century, the Catholic Church straight up forbade the loud celebrations that he was associated with because of his similarities to their description of the devil. And for a while, when they realized that Krampus wasn't going away, they embellished his features to make him more like the description of the devil. I was going to say, he sounds very devilish. Yep, they're trying to make him more scary so that instead of thinking that he's cool, they wanted to make sure that you did not like him. So he's he's like a party guy, kind of. So a little bit. Well, there's parties that are associated. There's parties that are associated with him. He's not a party guy. He just wants to hit you with sticks. Oh, (laughs) and stuff you in his sack and go away. That's not my idea of a party at all. For example, in the original descriptions of the son of hell, he isn't covered with chains and bells. That is something attributed to the Christians adding it on to make it more like the binding of the devil. Mm. Mm. Mm Hmm. This seems to be the most popularly shared origin for Krampus. It's the one I found in the most sources, but there are other potential origins. The Krampus tradition certainly has several origins which are located in different historical and geographic contexts, said Gertrude Seiser, a researcher for the Department of Social and Cultural Anthropology in the University of Vienna. During the Enlightenment period from 1685 to 1815, Krampus appeared in Vienna where he was used as an educational tool to teach children obedience and discipline, Sizer said. In the 17th and 18th centuries, carnival parades became popular in Bavaria and mountain areas of Austria, and Krampus has, was incorporated into them. Authorities tried to ban these parades in part because they led to young people getting drunk and rioting. <laughs> if Krampus can do it, I can do it too. <laughs> Krampus lore may have originated in Bavaria after the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. This is according to Jennifer Collins, a scholarly communications and reference librarian at the State University of New York. She has studied Krampus extensively and noted that the death rate from this war was immense, with some areas losing half their population. Oh. So this was like a distraction. Yep, that makes sense. Plague comes along, needs something to do. Hashtag fun fact. Krampus is not the only monstrous creature to appear this time of year. December 12th is dedicated to Perchta, who sometimes appears as a witch-like creature who would disembowel the girls who hadn't used up all their wool for the year. This just seems like a huge way to encourage child labor. Historically, Knitting clothing was essential for survival in southern Germany and the Alpine Austria, mm-hmm. and the myth of this creature encouraged girls to turn their wool into yarn and knit. You better get to work, girls, or you're going to get disemboweled. disemboweled. <laughs> so I might cover her next year if I can get enough information. I, I almost went on a whole side tangent, and I was like, no, we'll just throw it in as a fun fact. Okay. <laughs> Some sources noted that Krampus is believed to have originated in Germany, and his name is derived from the word Krampen, which means claw. In Austria in 1923, Krampus and all Krampusnacht activities were banned by the fascist Christian Social Party. Their motives were a little murky. Though they agreed that Krampus was a force for evil, there seems to have been some confusion about whether that was because of its clear ties to the Christian devil or the less clear ties to Social Democrats. See, I think that he would be evil because he has a bundle of switches that he beats children with. I mean, I think that's evil enough, right? Yeah, I would, you know, I'm anti-child abuse, personally. 
Either way, they were sure that Krampus wasn't good for kids, and so they passed out pamphlets titled Krampus is an Evil Man, warning parents against influencing young children with threats of a violent holiday intruder. Though they may have had a point about the traumatic effects about telling misbehaving children that they were going to be beaten by St. Nick's evil twin, society wasn't that deeply moved by their pamphlets. The ban lasted for only about four years, and vague murmurs of disapproval continued only a little while longer, but in the end... No one could keep Krampus down. Can't keep a good Krampus down. He's gotten more popular, especially in the last two decades with the rise of Krampus movies, um, featured episodes in shows like Supernatural and Grimm, and the general attitude of the public looking for different ways to celebrate Christmas or like the non-Christmas, but we still celebrate Christmas because our family celebrates Christmas. So like a different way to celebrate the season. So because of millennials. Yes. The creature and St. Nicholas are said to arrive on the evening of December 5th, known as Krampusnacht, or Krampus Night. While St. Nicholas rewards nice children by leaving presents, Krampus beats those who are naughty with branches and sticks, and in some cases he is said to eat them or take them to hell oh, in his sack. Fun. On December 6th, Nicholas Tog, or St. Nicholas Day, children awake to find their gifts or nurse their injuries. In less brutal, non-beating versions, that morning children look outside the door to see if the shoe or boot that they left outside contains either presents as a reward or a rod for their bad behavior. And then their parents get to beat them. Uh, uh, I'm guessing awesome. that's what that implication is. All these people really need to like dive into like child psychology and realize how harmful all of these acts are. Festivities involving Krampus include Krampus Lof, which is the Krampus run. In this activity, which often involves alcohol, people dress up as the creature and parade through the streets, scaring spectators and sometimes chasing them. Beginning in the late 20th century, amid efforts to preserve cultural heritage, Krampus runs became increasingly popular in Austria and Germany. During this time, Krampus began to be celebrated internationally, and as the monster's growing appeal was evidenced by numerous horror films, some claimed that the expanding popularity of Krampus was a reaction to the commercialization of Christmas. Oh, I can see that. All that's interesting points out that tourists who have witnessed a Krampus run say that running into a coffee shop won't save you from getting swatted by the Krampuses or Krampi, as I would like to call them, running around. Now, is that the correct pluralization of Krampus? Well, no. I just think it's funny to say Krampi. Okay. And the swats aren't exactly gentle, but luckily they're usually confined to the legs and the festive atmosphere often makes up for the occasional welt. Uh, I mean, I injure myself enough as is, so I don't need anyone else like switching me. According to a 2015 Smithsonian article, while some might find the annual festival of child hunting Krampus to be a grand old time, there were concerns that refugees in the Alpine towns that celebrate Krampus could find it, like, scary, obviously. Hmm. This caused some towns to uh, take down the horror aspects a notch. In 2015, Krampus' schedule arrival at the Alpine towns that celebrate him coincided with an influx of refugees from Syria and Afghanistan. So, though the festival is well-loved, it gave a rise to the concern that the new people coming into the area might be scared of the tradition when they don't know the background. I think that that, yes, if people are just dressing up like a demon and then running around and smacking you with sticks. Yeah. Rather than cancel the festival or the parade, the town officials decided to educate the newcomers. The Telegraph's Rosier Sabur wrote that refugee children in Leeds were invited to a presentation while they learned about the props costumes and the making of how all the costumes came about and then the background behind it so that they could learn about you know the area which it was sharing their culture with another culture i like i like that showing the like no this is fun it seems scary but it's actually really fun and this is why we do it seegers liked the idea of introducing krampus to refugees in austria and said i think it's wonderful that they get the refugees used to this sort of thing you can't force people to adopt cultural traditions of which they have no basis or point of reference Excellent point. Yep. If you're with us in the United States and looking for a way to celebrate Krampusnacht, here are a few famous ones throughout the country. Okay. Columbus, Ohio has the Krampus Haunted Christmas Experience, which is a massive interactive walkthrough horror attraction featuring elaborate sets, 
live actors, and audiovisual technology, and I want to go. Awesome. Featuring two different Christmas-themed attractions under one roof, the walkthrough attraction takes you through the tale of Krampus. Every scene will unveil another page in the storybook. And once that story is complete, you have to escape Krampus's lair. The experience starts with a giant indoor light show synced to music. And then Aftermath Frozen immersive walkthrough features large sets modeled after a post-apocalyptic city. For Krampus, we have transformed this town into a frozen wasteland complete with falling snow, wind, and fog. And they use technology to simulate walking through an old town in the middle of a blizzard. And they do this for two weekends every December. That's elaborate, but sounds so cool. New York City has Blood Blood Manor Scare Factory. For one day only, New York turns its world-class haunted house, the Blood Manor Scare Factory, into a terrifying celebration for Krampus. Runs through this haunted house while an assortment of demon friends chase and terrorize you. And of course, Krampus is in there somewhere, so you might find him. For just one day? One day. That's a lot of work to put in. It's a lot of work, and I imagine it's very busy. Yeah, yeah. The experience is titled as fully immersive and interactive with the idea being that you're venturing through an elusive lair and Krampus takes the naughty children to and you exit into Broadway and find creepy photo opportunities awaiting you. That is awesome. Washington, D.C. has a Krampus knocked. The D.C. Krampus knocked really has its own thing going on. There's a it's a bit different from festivities in the other towns because this event is more family friendly and has a charitable angle. The group that puts it on describes it as an inclusive community event that allows creative types to celebrate the holiday season while raising funds to support D.C. foster youth. Oh, that's good. And as we know, the bulk of our listeners are here in Minnesota. Uh-huh. St. Paul has Celebrating Alpine Heritage. And this is put on by Minnesota Krampus, which I've actually worked with a couple of times um, for shows because they do a lot of stuff with uh, Oktoberfests. Oh, wait, why? So a chance to get their name out there. Oh, okay. And it's close. It's leading up to the season. That's true. So Minnesota Krampus aims to promote cultural customs of the Alpine holiday traditions. They also provide academic scholarships to college students who are interested in topics involving the Alps and its people. Awesome. The organization has put a lot of effort into researching the most authentic masks and costumes in the areas near Salzburg, Austria. They have hand-carved wooden masks and full-body hair suits that come from this region. And not only do they put on their own annual Krampus knock, but they hold events throughout the year. And these Midwesterners are serious about their Krampus. Like I said, I know they've been to several Oktoberfest celebrations. Yeah. The night is filled with family-friendly events that lead into fire dancing, traditional folk dances, and gifts for children. And eventually it does turn into an adults-only party with a DJ, a costume contest, and booze. But all for a good cause. I I want to go. Well, that one we could go to. St. Paul is easy. And to wrap it up for our listeners this holiday season, I would like to end my story with recommendations for three movies that feature Krampus for you to check out and get in the holiday mood. Number one, and my personal favorite, A Christmas Horror Story. An anthology tale that takes place on Christmas Eve as told by one festive radio host. A family brings home more than a Christmas tree as a student documentary becomes a living nightmare. A Christmas spirit terrorizes and Santa slays evil. Available on Shudder with a subscription or to rent on Amazon Prime. Good to know. Good to. I like that you tell us where we can find it because now I don't have to Google. <laughs> uh, there is also the movie Krampus from 2015 which features a boy who has had a bad Christmas and he accidentally summons a festive demon to his family home. Available on Peacock, Sci-Fi, or to rent on Amazon Prime. Amazon's just got all those creepy movies. And the last one, which it's a total B-movie, but 100% worth a watch, is Sleigh Bells. Uh, But Sleigh as in? Like S-L-A-Y-B-E-L-L-E-S. It's Christmas Eve, and three cosplaying women come across the malevolent Christmas demon Krampus. The girls must team up with Santa Claus himself to battle the creature and save the world. And this one is free with ads. Like, you have to watch ads, but it's on Tubi and Freebie, which are both free apps you can download. That's awesome. And that is my story of Krampus. 
I'm going to clap for myself because it's better to have two claps than one. <laughs> um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm adjusting myself. Okay. Um, weird. All right. So I feel like I, I know the answer to this. Like, I feel like this should just be straight nerd ass, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. On our skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what do you give Krampus? Okay. If, if I thought it was real, I would give it a five because it's definitely para. However, and the scale of believability, I'm going to go ahead and give it a, a one because I don't think that Krampus is real. Yep, it's it's nerd ass. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> That's okay. No rating necessary. Absolutely normal shit. Nope. No nope. rating necessary. Normal ass shit. Normal ass shit. There we go. You know, I, I can't le- even remember what I what I did. I know. I'm always <laughs> the one that lets you know, and you're the one who came up with it. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't always. Oh wait, uh, Gina recommends the movie Rare Exports, which I. Don't think I've seen. Where can we find it, Gina? Gina, where can we find it? Also, hi, Gina. Oh, she'll tell us eventually. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there is a lag from like what we do. Yeah. So I uh, unintentionally have a very similar vibe. Okay. And you're gonna you'll you'll know what I mean within the first couple of sentences. All right. All right, so I know that this episode is the, you know, the one before Christmas. And, of course, Kayla had this super sweet story about Krampus, but there are only so many Christmas-related stories. So instead of doing something Christmas-related, I decided that I'm going to tell you about a cryptid. Okay. Uh, Kayla, have you ever heard of the Totselverm? No, I have not, but I'm going to say, just on that name, it's German. Uh, it, It can be. Okay, okay. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, <laughs> so the Totselverm has been seen throughout many European countries, including Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, uh, so primarily in the Alps. All which right, is a lot Alps. of where uh, Krampus came from. Yeah, hell yeah. All right, so this is why the Totselverm is also known as the Alps dragon, as well as Stolenverm. Springverm, Arasis, Pretzelverm, and Bergstutzen. Pretzelworm? A Pretzelworm. Pretzelworm. <laughs> so it's it's a verm of many names. A verm of many names is just as sweet. <laughs> uh verms are not very sweet. <laughs> okay, okay. So the stories of Totselverm go back actually hundreds of years with the first documented sighting dating back to the 14th century. Now, many websites say, oh, this is the first sighting was in the 1700s. No, wait, the first sighting was in the 1600s. But the furthest one back I found was actually the 14th century. Okay. Where a, quote, convicted criminal... Uh, the distinction is to why that is important comes into play a little bit later. Anyway, so this criminal, his name was Heinrich von Winkelfried. Yeah, that's a criminal name. Yep. So he was said to have squared off with a dragon-like creature who had been terrorizing the small village of Unterwalden in Switzerland. Allegedly, Heinrich had agreed to fight this creature in order to save the village in exchange for his freedom. And he won. Yeah. He won against this dragon-like creature. But unfortunately for poor Heinrich, in his triumph, he raised his sword to the heavens, allowing a drop of the creature's blood to fall upon him, which then killed him instantly once it touched his skin. So it's like alien blood. Yeah, it's bad luck, man. Like like in the movie Alien, the blood is acidic. Is it? Yeah. I immediately think of X-Files because we're re-watching X-Files oh, and the green yeah. blood and like how it... It's like acid. Yep. All right. Then in 1660, a man named Andreas Raduner claimed to have encountered what he described as a four-legged, cat-faced mountain dragon on Mount Vangersberg in Switzerland. That sounds so badass. Um, A four-legged, cat-faced mountain dragon? Yeah. (laughs) He said that when the beast reared up on its hind legs, that it was as tall as a man with boar-like bristles running down its back. Another man, not far from there, uh, named Johannes Ergerter, 
claimed to have seen a four-legged lizard-like creature. So while Johannes described it as a dragon with an enormous head and two forelimbs, he also said that when it exhaled its breath, uh, that he was overcome with a headache and dizziness. It's got really bad breath. Okay. It's like me when I wake up in the morning. Exactly. Meanwhile, other folks in Johannes's neck of the woods also claimed to have been plagued by the creature, claiming that something was sucking on their cow's udders. And it remained a mystery as to what could possibly be sucking on their cow's udders until this dragon-like creature was later killed and the udder sucking stopped. <laughs> the udder sucking stopped. <laughs> I really debated how I was going to say that. <laughs> That's what I came up with. <laughs> Okay, so this thing isn't killing livestock. It's just like, I'm going to drink that milk. Yeah, yeah, but they were annoyed, probably because, you know, they wanted that milk. Yeah, legit. Yeah. Next, the uh, the next documented sighting that I found took place in 1680 when a man named Johann Jacob Wagner claimed to have come across such a creature, again, in Switzerland. Uh, a lot of these take place in Switzerland. And he, too, described it as dragon-like. Later, his description would be used to create a copper plate of the creature by another Johann Jacob uh, Schusser. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. His name, you just keep saying these names and that's all I can think of. Sorry. Johann. Johann. <laughs> and another Johann. And another Johannes. <laughs> anyway, so his description, this uh, original Johann Jacob Wenger. So he saw this in 1680. And then his description was later used to create this copper plate, which was then, I, I think, put in books uh, by a different Johann uh, in 1723, leading to the beast be referred to as um, the second Johann's last name, which is who? Uh, Schutzer's? Johann Jacob Schutzer. Uh, so it led Schutzer? him. I don't know. It led him to, led the beast to be referred to as. Schutzer's dragon, later to be interpreted as the stolen verm. Stolen verm. Nearly 100 years later, in 1779, two of these mysterious and apparently quite frightening creatures were stumbled upon by a man named Hans Fuchs. According to legend, Hans was so badly frightened by the creatures that he suffered a fatal heart attack, but not before he told his family about his encounter. He described a monster that was five to seven feet long with a snake-like body, clawed front legs, and a large feline-like head with sharp teeth. I get that this creature looks scary. I understand it. But all I can think is, like, how scary is this creature, really, if it's just, like, drinking milk? Okay. Uh, Y'all are going to have to wait until uh, on Wednesday to be able to see this, but I'm going to show you a picture of this. I'm just saying, like, it's drinking milk. Do you want some cookies, too? I think it's fucking cute. Oh, it's adorable. Hold on. Maybe we can get it to look. Hold on. Uh, sort of. <laughs> it's cute. It kind of like, looks like Evie. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like Evie if Evie had a long snake-like body. Yeah. That's all over. So reports of this creature tend to vary in description. Some folks describe it as serpentine, reptile-like creature. Uh, and then there's the more like feline chimera vibe to something that sounds a little bit more like a small Asian dragon. Think like Mushu. Mm-hmm. But usually it is described as a lizard or snake-like creature with stubby front legs, no hind legs, completely covered in scales with a cat-like face. Sounds adorable. I want one as a pet. It's adorable. It's adorable. It there are some descri- there are some like depictions of it that are less cute. <laughs> you just found the cute one. I just found the- yeah. I mean, it looks like my cat. So you know, <laughs> you know. The Tatsa worm is also believed to be dangerously venomous, <laughs> able to kill a human instantly with its bite, breathing poisonous fumes. Like we heard before, that guy got a headache and was very dizzy, mm-hmm. um, and even possessing acid blood. Uh, which is what happened to poor Heinrich. Which Dimitri pointed out to us, it's uh, the creature from Alien is called a xenomorph. Xenomorph. They have acid blood. So that's what I was thinking of. Okay. In 1828, a, quote, peasant, allegedly came across the corpse of a Totsilverm. And although it had been half eaten by crows by the time they came about it, 
Uh, they believed that this was proof that the creature existed. However, there wasn't enough left of the creature to confirm that it did in fact exist. Maybe it was just a very sad cat. <laughs> and while a good chunk of these reports came out of the Swiss Alps, Switzerland, as I said before, is not the only place where the Totzelwurm is said to have been spotted. In an 1836 Bulvarian hunting manual called the New Pocket Guide of the Year, 1836 for Nature, Forest, and Hunting Enthusiasts. It's a long name. Uh, there is a picture of a Totzelwurm in which it is described by Bernard Ovalmans as a sort of scaly cigar with <laughs> formidable teeth and wretched little stumps of feet. <laughs> scaly cigar. And wretched little stumps of feet. <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. I think it's adorable. Uh, by the 19th century, the Totzelwurm essentially became established as fact in the Alps, with sightings also occurring in Italy, Germany, and Austria, despite the fact that there was no, there was little to no proof that it actually existed. And actually, in 1887, naturalist Carl Wilhelm von Dallator wrote The History of Dragons of the Alps, claiming that these creatures were simply big old lizards. Or snakes, apparently completely ignoring the whole cat head thing. Mm -hmm. He said that they were also just simply creatures of the past, having become extinct in the last century or so. But then in 1954, a Swiss photographer claimed to have taken a photo of the elusive Totzelwurm. All right. Sparking renewed interest in the creature, and this prompted a search for the dragon cat-faced beast, though no additional evidence was found. It was kind of a bummer. Oh, they're like, oh, we got proof. Let's go find it. And then they found <laughs> nothing. Uh, but it, that was not the last that we hear of the Totzelwurm, as stories and sightings have continued throughout the years. Like, apparently, the Totzelwurm is capable of leaping nine feet into the air. Nice. Very. Uh, some folks claim that it spouts green blood when attacked. So more like a predator than a xenomorph. Yes. However, any... Proof of the Totzelwurm that has been presented has all pretty much been written off as hoaxes. And while the most recent sighting of the Totzelwurm, or Totzelwurm-like creatures, uh, happened in 2009 Ooh. in Traverso, Italy, this was allegedly explained away as simply being an escaped monitor lizard. No, I don't know what a monitor lizard is. I know what a monitor lizard is, and it looks like a monitor lizard. I don't know how you would confuse that with a Totzelwurm. <laughs> They obviously don't understand what Totzelwurms are. Yeah, obviously, because a, a, a monitor lizard does not have a cat face. Most lizards don't. No lizards do. There's a, <laughs> there are zero lizards with a cat face. <laughs> so while the sightings date back centuries, this and that this might... Hmm, <laughs> hmm, this is the stuff we cut out. <laughs> So, while the sightings that date back centuries might imply that at one point this lizard-like, dragon, cat-faced, poison-breathing creature did indeed exist. A lot of descriptions. <laughs> the proof has yet to be found. Either way, it appears that the Totzelwurm, were it to have existed, appears to be extinct. But I read in a couple places that cryptozoologists believe that, like, this is one of the cryptids where they're like, we are pretty sure that at one point in time it did exist, but it doesn't anymore. Okay. And that is the story of the Totzelwurm. All right. So on a skeptic scale, I'm going to do kind of what you did. Okay. Believability and paranormality. Okay. So on the paranormality scale, I'm going to give it like a two. I like the paranormality <laughs> i mean i'm gonna say like from paranormal i'm gonna say it's it's like a two okay. i i think it's far more likely it was just a creature that existed mm -hmm. and went extinct there's tons of those out there people i mean not all the time but people find out about creatures that existed and you're like what the fuck is this they think it's something else and they're like oh wait no this is a whole new species yeah and like, I don't, like, I suppose it is weird that it would have, like, a cat face, but, like, depending on the angles of the bone structure and everything, who knows? But on the believability, I'm going to give it, like, a four and a half. I believe that something existed, and 
apparently it drank milk. So maybe it was like omnivorous. My only thing is, okay, so people seem to die from the bite or the blood, but the cow was fine? Well, it didn't bite it. It suckled the milk. Suckle is a fun word. Um, you know, Like, yeah, I mean, uh, so if you think about like people talking about breastfeeding, uh-huh. right? Um, when people breastfeed, their nipples get all chapped and whatever, but they're not straight up like bite. You're not getting like, not on sometimes they do yeah well i mean but generally like and then that's why people stop breastfeeding (laughs) but you could drink milk without like they could drink milk without biting and and not all venomous or poisonous creatures are uh what's the word i'm looking for they're not not, they're not all aggressive it's a defense mechanism that's true that's true maybe it's a maybe they can choose when they're venomous and not no, I don't think they can choose. I just think that they choose whether or not to bite. Like, um, so think about it like a skunk. Like a skunk doesn't want to spray you. It does it as a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. It's quite dreadful. Yeah. I've never been sprayed by a skunk directly, but I've I've definitely experienced Blech. the aftermath. <laughs> Gross. Um, you know, I'm going to do very some. I don't think that it was necessarily... Para, paranormability. What did you call it? Paranormality. Paranormality. I don't really think that it's necessarily a paranormal thing. I, I also would probably give it to you. Um, I do believe that it probably existed, though. I, I think that because there are stories going back to the 14th century, like that's that's a lot of stories. Yeah. And I also personally believe in dragons existing at one point in time or another. That's for another episode. But uh, <laughs> So like a tiny little dragon... That that could have existed. That had a beautiful, beautiful cat-like face. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, so I've got some extra stories here. These are like mini stories that I've looked up and went to go like share. And then they just weren't long enough for a whole part of an episode. So as a part of this special Spooky Wednesday, Spooky Monday, I'm going to share... More of them after we finish recording the episode. But I'm going to share one for our listeners that are joining us on Spooky Wednesday. Let's do it. And I am going to tell y'all about the Val Johnson incident, a 1979 UFO sighting. So, fun fact, this is a Minnesota sighting. What? Yeah. Really? This is why I wanted to cover it. Originally, there's just not enough information to fill a whole half of an episode. Yeah, that's not very much. And it's been a long ass time since I have talked about a UFO. A UFO. I yeah. love this shit. So, Minnesota in the 1970s was something of a hotbed of UFO activity, actually. What? For the people who believe in that sort of thing anyway. This was a big decade for UFOs in Minnesota, said David Keeney, co-author of Minnesota in the 70s. The end of the 70s brought about one of the most well-known, unexplained encounters in the Midwest. The Val Johnson Incident. Val Johnson was a Marshall County Sheriff's deputy on night patrols outside of Warren, Minnesota, which is near the North Dakota-Minnesota border. Okay. In the early hours of August 26, 1979, he was driving a rural stretch of Highway 20 when he says a ball of light appeared in the road. Johnson reported that while he was on patrol at about 2 a.m., he saw a beam of light just above the road. According to Johnson, the beam sped towards him. Oh, that's never a good sign. (laughs) Quote, I noticed a very bright, brilliant light, 8 to 12 inches in diameter, 3 to 4 feet off the ground. The edges were very defined, which he said in a taped police interview. Oh. Before he knew it, the light was in the car with him. What? What? It hit him, and then Johnson described the feeling as if being hit with a 200-pound pillow. His squad car was engulfed in light, and he heard glass breaking. He woke up in a ditch a half an hour later with burns around his eyes. A a 200-pound pillow. So it was soft, but So it's like but soft, heavy? but super heavy. Okay. The windshield and one headlight of his 1977 Ford LTD were smashed. Both radio antennas were bent sharply back, and the watch on his wrist and the clock on the dashboard both ticked 14 minutes slow. So, the standard UFO issue of a loss of time. Yeah. Johnson suffered bruises and eye irritation that a physician compared to welder's burns. Oh. 
When the story was received nationally and publicly, Johnson told reporters of the sudden attention had caused him and his family a great deal of emotional strain. On September 11, 1979, Johnson appeared as a guest on ABC's Good Morning America program because of this incident. Deputies responding to Johnson's call for help found the squad car sideways on the road. Police investigated and never drew any conclusions. UFOologists, including Alan Hendry and Jerome Clark, consider the incident significant, with Clark claiming that the Johnson refused to take a polygraph test because Johnson believed it would only serve to satisfy people's morbid curiosity. Hmm. UFO skeptic Philip Klaus argued that the entire event was a hoax and that Johnson had deliberately damaged his own patrol car. Oh. The incident regained popularity in recent years when it served as the inspiration for the story arc of the TV show Fargo. What? Really? Yeah. I never watched that. I just like the accents. So basically, this story is Minnesota-based and the big arguments for its not believability is that he wouldn't take a polygraph test. But I would like to share my opinion that I don't think that a refusal to take a polygraph test indicates lying. Think of it this way. You experienced something. Mm -hmm. You know you experienced it. You know absolutely you experienced it. And polygraph tests are not proven to be correct all of the time. No, that's very true. It's part of the reason they don't use it all the time for... Like investigations, right? Yeah, it's not admissible in court. Yeah, it's not an exact science by any means. So somebody wants you to take a polygraph test and they're like, yeah, no, just prove that it's right. Like, no, you're not going to use this to tell me that what I experienced didn't happen. Well, also, depending on how long after it, they asked him to do that. Because he said that his family and himself like experienced a lot of emotional Mm -hmm. badness. And so... If he had already been like ridiculed a bunch and they're like, take a polygraph test, I could imagine being like, you know what? No, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. Just yep. leave me alone. Also, I think it's stupid that they think that he purposefully wrecked his own squad car uh, to pull off this hoax. I think if anything, he did something stupid to his squad car accidentally and then was like, oh, how am I going to explain this? Um, UFO. <laughs> and I just think, all right, so... He has a solid job. Right. He wants to keep his solid job. Mm-hmm. So why would he risk it by making something up? Right. I, unless unless he's trying to hide something. Like you said, like He did accident, something stupid. Which yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I don't think that he would do it on purpose in order to potentially lose his solid job. So on a skeptic Seems scale, so. what would you give the Val Johnson incident? <sighs> I, You know, uh... One of the issues with such a short story is that there's there's not enough information for yeah. me to like consider any kind of evidence. So I don't know. I'm gonna go four because I strongly believe in UFOs. UFO activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's odd that Minnesota was like a hot spot for UFOs in the 70s. Well, we got that lake. We have many lakes. Well, we have many. <laughs> we're, lakes. we're known for that. <laughs> Specifically, um, all the lakes. There's a lot of stories that center around the Great Lakes and the areas around the Great Lakes. A lot of UFO stories center around the lakes. But that's not near. But when you look at when you look at the general, like how big the United States is, Uh one state, like there's like being around there. It's yeah, it's not on the lake, but that's a day's trip. So if it's a UFO, like it can be in that area. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I think that's a bit of a stretch. I think you're a bit of a stretch. Well, all right then. (laughs) (laughs) I tried really hard to come up with with some sort of response to that, and I couldn't. So all right then. I am a bit of a stretch. (laughs) I don't know. I I think that in the scope of things, Mm -hmm. this is close to the Great Lakes compared to lots of other states. I'm calling it. Okay. We're not going to agree here, you're, are we? You're right. Uh, north, the North Dakota border of Minnesota is much closer to Lake Superior than California. Absolutely. That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're not going to wrap up the live, but we are going to wrap up the episode here. Before we do, um, do you want to do this special announcement? I think you should do it. You made it happen. Okay. So next week is our 
100th episode. Guys. 100th episode. Yeah. We did this for 100 weeks straight. We did not take a break. So, this is a big thing to celebrate. And how are we going to celebrate? With Kara and Steph from the Prophecy Girls podcast. The Prophecy Girls, a Buffy rewatch podcast. We talk about them all the time. They are so good. And they were gorgeous and amazing and agreed to, despite the time difference and everything else and being amazing and Canadian, come on and Zoom and podcast with us and talk about the thing that you'll hear about next week. And what's really great is they also agreed... That Minnesota should be annexed into Canada. Yes. So let's all become Canadian. Yes. Yes. We basically are if we're from Minnesota. Yep. I got the accent. Yep. Yep. I'm in. You betcha. You betcha. Yeah, dude. (laughs) (laughs) So check it out next week. Be very excited. Share it with everybody. And if you haven't listened to the Prophecy Girls podcast, go listen to that. And then listen next week where we talk to to the Prophecy Girls Oh, my God. We only geek out a little bit. Uh, Yeah. And I did not cry, which I was very proud of. (laughs) You were afraid you were going to cry? Of course. I cry when I meet people I like a lot. Okay. It's it's, it's, it's a thing. Okay. I'm a very emotional bitch. (laughs) Which is so weird because you have such like a tough exterior. <laughs> it's that mall goth. It's that mall goth, man. Yeah, emo, emo. It seems like you would like draw like, like a tears. single tear. Yeah, but, with eyeliner. Yeah, but but that you wouldn't actually cry any real ones. I did that in high school. Oh, draw tears. Yeah, that's the thing I did. Did people get you confused for a murderer? No. Well, that's good. They just got me confused for somebody who didn't know how to do their makeup. Oh, wait. That implies that you did know how to do your makeup. Yeah, it was a secret. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, next week is our hundredth episode. The Prophecy Girls are on it. Where we were, what what lovely humans! Oh my gosh! Oh, I'm so excited. Anyway, I know, I know. <sighs> anyway, so um, if you have a listener story or a suggestion for something you'd like us to cover or any suggestions at all, you can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail or you can visit our w- or our website www.leftoskeptic.com and click the listener stories tab at the top of the page. You can also visit the link tree in our bio. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name whichever you're more comfortable with. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on TikTok. Please follow us on TikTok. Please. Instagram and Twitter at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. All right, uh, for you live listeners, we're going to come back in with some other stories and chat with you a bit. But for the rest of you, we really appreciate you and love you very much. We do indeed appreciate you so much. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay, Okay. bye. Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!